Good morning, everyone. We'll, um, we'll start with a quick prayer. Father, um, we just thank you that we're able to come here this Sunday morning to uh, enjoy one another's fellowship and company and enjoy your fellowship and company and to be able to uh, look at your word and see how it applies to our lives and pray that we, as Dara prayed, would be obedient to your word. Um, that we would go out, as Jason keeps saying, as we will go out of here during the week, changed people, Lord. Um, a people who are fueled up by the food of your word. It is indeed food. And so, Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, anyone that knows me uh, kind of knows I live out in Connemara in the middle of the bog. And uh, it's a nice, pleasant place to live. And as a young lad, I had an awful lot of freedom to kind of roam and walk and, and fish and, and, and hunt around the, the vast boglands around my house. And I remember when I was a young lad, eight, nine, when I first started going out on my own, um, mom would say, don't fall into any bog holes now. And we'd say, you know, I'd say, no, mom, you're grand. Sure, just don't be worrying about it, you know. Now, anyone who's not from Connemara might know what a bog hole is. Um, it's, it's where we cut turf. And over the years, you have a big bank of turf that's cut. And sometimes it can end up being six foot lower than the existing sort of bank of turf. And they're fine because you know down there in the, in the, in the, in the hole, it's, it's probably only about waist deep when it's covered with water. So if you're walking from A to B and you have to walk through a lot of these kind of old hags, as we call them, you'll kind of have to walk around unless you're good at jumping. And sometimes we ended up in them when we'd go up with a mate to go fishing. And that was fine. It was good fun. I used to love bringing up unsuspecting friends of mine. Uh, some city boys who weren't used to walking on the bog and just telling them, you know, hey, walk there and walk there, and then boom, put them right in the middle of a bog hole. It was a great laugh. But there was one thing that was a bit more dangerous, and that even worried me, was where you came across an old lake in the bog, and it had grown in, and there was a thin skin of moss and grass on it. And obviously, once it was a small pond or a small lake, and you'd, these were designated, you'd see reeds and sort of um, just plants that didn't look kosher on the, in the middle of the bog, and you had to really be careful around them, especially in wintertime. Like, if you went down there, you were down. And who knows how deep they were. I never fell into one of those, but we used to love jumping from tussock to tussock. You could navigate them by jumping tussocks to tussocks and get out of them. But you had to show them a bit of respect. So today's sermon, in case anyone thinks they're uh, at the induction course of, a, <laughs> of an adventure course here, we are actually preaching, and we're preaching today on pits and holes and how to get out of them spiritually. This is all figurative language, by the way. Um, and the pits and the bog holes of our lives are stresses, as Dara said, and challenges and trials that we all go through. And everyone in this room, I'm sure, has been through multiple different types. And as you look at me and hear me and listen to me today, I'm sure that you, you know, like, like myself, you're going through trials at this very moment. And they can be tough. So what we're going to look at today is how should we as Christians react to a life of trials. What should we do when we find ourselves down in a muddy, pity bog hole and we can't seem to get out? How should we react? And secondly, maybe, should we react differently to the world reacts around us? And I think there's a man who has much to say about these things, and that's David, who wrote much of the, or many of the Psalms in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And I love the Psalms. I always have, even from, as a young Christian, or as a new Christian, I, was, I always used to gravitate towards the Psalms. And the reason, the reason why, and I'm sure everyone here will concur maybe, is that no matter what mood you're in, and you open up a Psalm, 
you know, if you read enough of them, you kind of go, ooh, that's where I'm at. That one really speaks to me. And it kind of borne out to me from, from, a, from a new Christian stance that there was something particularly unique about this word. And God himself attests through Paul that it's living and active. It's a double-edged sword. It can meet your needs right where you are at the cold phase at that particular time in life. And I would, you know, of all the people in the Bible, I, I just love David. I think he's so human. I think he's so much like us. He lived such a full life, didn't he? I mean, as a kid or as a young man, he fought bears with his bare hands, seemingly, and lions to deter them away from the flock. He fought Goliath. He then went on as a, as, as a young man in his early 20s to be a general in Saul's army, fighting against the Philistines and all sorts of other dastardly enemies, and succeeding. And then just when you think he was the darling boy of Israel, he falls out with Saul, or should I say Saul falls out with him and pursues him for, for many, many years. And even though David was the rightful heir to the throne, Saul would not relinquish and pursued him and gave David all sort of grief for years and years and years. I'd love to sit around the campfire with David and just chat with him and, and just listen to all the great stories he must have to tell, but also all the great regrets in his life because he made some serious messes as well. And like all messes that we do in life, or we find ourselves in life, or we find that we're the instigator of, there will be collateral damage. And David really messed up, and his personal life suffered, and even the life of the nation of Israel suffered because of David's sins. But anyways, God uses David to speak to us. And I think David has probably lived out 20 gazillion lifetimes for us in his psalms. He's seen and been through so much. So I think it's very prudent of us to listen carefully to what David has to say on how to get out of a pit when you find yourself in one. And that's why as I was trying to pick a psalm for this, um, for this sermon today, I thought Psalm 40 would be good. So we find just a brief overview. It's, it's kind of unusual as a psalm because most psalms are kind of thanksgiving or praise. This actually is a mixture. You're the first half up to verse 10. It's sort of a thanksgiving that David has on his heart because God delivered him out of a pit. We don't know what exactly what problem he was going through. And just when we think, you know, we're getting into it and we're really enjoying it and we're saying, hey, this is positive stuff, we find from verse 11 till the end, David is stuck in another pit. And he's crying and pleading with God to get him out of that one as well. And that was the pattern of David's life. And it's probably the pattern of our life as well, if we're honest. Just because we're rid of one pit behind us and we've got deliverance from God doesn't mean that's it. It's all rosy now. It's only a short while before the next one comes along. Anyways, in verses 1 to 3, if we look at them, we'll see that David is in a right fix. He's in dire straits. We're not exactly sure what's going on here. Um, and just like a real pit or a real bog hole, it's hard to get out of it. And David is struggling. He can't find any base to put his feet on. And if you're in a bog hole ever, the, the more you rummage, the more you try and power your way out or try and half jump your way out, the more you just go down. And David, I'm sure, despite we don't know if he was king at the stage, despite his vast resources, he's in trouble. Now, remember David, this remarkable man. As, you know, we're just normal Christians, aren't we? Sitting here on Sunday morning here in Galway City Baptist Church. But remember David, who was a king of Israel, anointed leader, a magnificent, diligent servant of God. And here he is in a fix. What could he do? What can we do? Well, the text tell us that he did one thing. Now, 
it looks like it's the only thing he could do, but it was a very important thing. It tells us that if you look carefully, it says he waited. And not just that, notice it says he waited patiently. Now, what was he waiting for? Was he waiting for himself maybe to figure out a way out of this fix? I don't think so. He was waiting for deliverance from God. We don't know how long he waited, but we do know he waited quite a while. Can you pick up the clue there as to how long he had to wait? It says he had to wait patiently. And if you're waiting patiently for something, it doesn't happen straight away. We don't know how long he was in the pit, but it required David to show patience. The relief that David was looking for, it didn't come straight away. He had to wait for it. Now, when David was crying out to the Lord, we read in verse 1, listen to what God did. He inclined his ear to me, or he inclined to me, and heard my cry. Imagine the God of creation. Imagine the sovereign king, mighty Lord, inclining down to a sinner like David, who was in a pit of trials, and listening to him. Isn't it a lovely fatherly image? It's just like, you know, when one of your kids comes into the kitchen and they're just after cutting their knee and you bend down on your knee and say, what's up, love? You'll be all right. And you give them a kiss and a hug and you pat them on the back. And sometimes that's all they want and they trundle off again as if nothing happened. That's kind of the, you know, when I was reading this, he inclined to me and heard my cry. That's kind of what came into my mind, that he was, God is just so fatherly, such a perfect father, not like our own broken, imperfect fathers, you know, as we lived our lives or as we live our lives. I'm, not, I'm looking here at kids. <laughs> fathers are great, but sometimes they're not perfect. And when you grow up, kids, you're going to be a father or a mom, but you won't be a perfect father or a mom. But anyways, God is the perfect father. He's the perfect king. He's the perfect redeemer. And so he answers David in three ways. Do you notice the three ways he answers him? He drew him up, number one, out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. Number two, notice there he says, and he set his feet, or set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And number three, it says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now, the rescue that David tried, or David was looking for rescuing, but he couldn't get it. God had to step in and rescue him. Just as David was wallowing in the mud, struggling to get out, God steps in. Now, all of us meet trials in this life. Like I mentioned earlier, there's many people here who suffer through terrible trials and who are still suffering through terrible trials. And there's such a wide gamut of trials in this life, isn't there? It affects everyone. It affects kids. You could have, at this time, a bad relationship with a parent. Maybe just mom and dad are just bugging you. Our mom and dad are saying the same thing. Man, why are you such a difficult kid? It could be someone's just lost their job. They can't see any hope. They've had this job for years. It's been good to them. They've been able to bring in a good income, bring up the family well, and suddenly, boom, it's gone. Or maybe suddenly health problems rear their ugly heads. Maybe cancer, some sort of illness or an accident. Many, many, many trials, and we all know them. Just fill in the dots. And sometimes you might find yourself in a pit while you're experiencing one of these, and you're exhausted fighting it. You've tried everything. You've sought counsel. You've sought the Lord, perhaps, hopefully. And nothing seems to be improving. And all you can do is just cling on and hope, exhausted and tired of the whole thing. 
You know, as a Christian, you might be going through a trial at this very time, and you've cried out for God. And you think, well, look at God's not answering me at the moment. I wonder why that is. And then you read Psalm 40, and you say, well, God answered David. Good on him, but David is not me. David is the anointed king of Israel, a mighty man of God, choosing king through which even Jesus, the Messiah, through David's lineage, he's promised to come. I'm not David. God mightn't, and God doesn't, you might think, deal with me the same way as he dealt with David. How would you comfort a Christian who has thoughts like these? How would you counsel them? Because let's face it, and let's be honest, we've all had thoughts like these and we will have them again. One thing which we can do is God's words comforts us. And we go to Romans 2, verse 11, and it says, God shows no partiality. So when you struggle and you think, well, look, God deals with David differently to me. God deals with Moses differently than he deals with me. Remember, God shows no partiality. This should comfort us. You know, we're sometimes prone to think when we're in the pits that, We've somehow fallen out of favor with God. I get these thoughts all the time. I don't know about you. You might think, well, look at, I don't know what I've done to end up in this pit. But God's love is, is feeling distant now. God's love feels far away from me now. I don't know why. I don't know what I can do to get back underneath his wings again, underneath his comforting assurance that he loves me. Now, this is a ploy of Satan. Satan is alive and kicking today. These thoughts of doubts that Christians have, these are not good doubts. These are not true, doubt, true doubts. This is not the way God views you. Even when you're going through terrible pits, even when you're going through times which are really, really difficult and you're beginning to doubt your assurance in God, you're beginning to doubt that God loves you, this is not the right way to think. You're being fooled. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, and listen to this, this is God speaking to you. In this is love, not that, we'd be, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that means satisfaction, for our sons or for our sins. Now, as we read the Old Testament, as we read the New Testament, and we read about these biblical superstars, Moses, David, Abraham, Rahab, read chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of fame, so to speak, of, of Christian martyrs and superstars. And you'll see that God deals with all of them the same as he deals with you and me. God deals with their sin exactly the same way. He deals with them personally the same way. The same blood that Jesus spilt on the cross for their sin, he spilt on the cross for our sin. God has no partiality. Remember that. So instead of kind of thinking of David as sort of some sort of superstar up there, we have to think that David, okay, the details might have been different. Nevertheless, he had the same emotions, the same fears, the same joys, the same doubts as we do. And don't forget that. You know, David made plenty of mistakes, but he also did plenty of good stuff in his life, God-pleasing stuff. And so I think, as we look at Psalm 40, it's going to be wise to see what David has to say. And I think as we look at this issue of what it means for David to wait patiently on the Lord, I think we can pick out seven things from Psalm 40. See, can you pick them out as we're going through them? The first thing that we might pick out is 
Number one, he waited patiently on the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean, you know when you go into the doctor's surgery and you see a big pile of magazines, and you kind of, you flick through them, and you kind of wait and hang around. You're, you know you're waiting. You're in the waiting room. It says it on the door. But it's a completely passive sort of waiting. You're just, you're doing nothing. This is not the type of waiting that David is talking about. The type of waiting that David is talking about is active waiting. Often when we're in the pit, and I, I experience this, sometimes we draw closer to God. Sometimes when we're in the pit, we, we kind of feel we're far from God. But often, and I don't know the attest to this, Christians, but often when you're in the pit, you can only call out to one person, and that's God. And therefore, you feel closer to Him. When times are good, and I'm sure most of you again will attest to this, you kind of forget God, don't you? You think, oh, I'm, I'm getting on swimmingly well at the moment. Things are going very well in my life. And God suddenly kind of pushes back into the mists again, only to be brought into sharp focus again when there's a problem that we can't surmount. It's a terrible way to be, but it's exactly the pattern that we see of biblical um, figures in the, in, 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 the, in the Bible, isn't it? Even of Israel. When they were going through troubles, they would plead with God, help me, deliver us, Israel would shout. And then God would step in and move, and then he'd be forgotten again, pushed to the side until the next trial came up. This was a pattern in Israel's lives, and I think it's a pattern in our lives. It certainly is a pattern in my life. I love Proverbs 30, verses 8 to 9. It shows this idea that as Christians, we should almost be praying, I don't know how to put this, not for the good times to be so good and not for the bad times to be so bad. I know it's kind of a get-out clause card. We love things to be average in life. But Proverbs, 8, or Proverbs 30 reads this. The, the person who wrote it, probably Solomon, says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Least I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, the person who wrote Proverbs pleads with God, just give me enough. Just give me enough so that I don't forget you. Just give me enough so that I don't let you down by trying to do something under my own power. Point number two, I think we can spot from here, is sometimes our waiting on the Lord means to cry out to him for deliverance, to cry out to him for deliverance. Now, sometimes as Christians, and, and again, I'm speaking personally here, and I'm sure perhaps people here would agree as they, as, they hear, as they hear me point this out, is sometimes as Christians, we think, well, look, I'm a Christian now. I've, I've relinquished my control of my life to God. And yet, when some sort of problem comes up in life, we find out that's not quite true we find out we're still clinging on to parts of our life that we haven't relinquished control of. We know God is creator. We know he's sovereign. We know he's king. We know he's father. We know he cares for us. We know he loves for us. But yet in our lives, we have little rooms that we haven't relinquished control of God of those particular parts of our lives. And sometimes we, because of that, we just don't realize that we're needy. We don't realize that as David here says here, we're, we're poor, which kind of means the same thing as needy in this context. And therefore, we don't cry out when we have troubles. Now, David shows a brilliant attitude in the psalm. He realized he's weak. He realized that he needs help. So he's not afraid to cry out. 
He says, or Peter says in, verse, in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves. Peter is the same sentiment here. The person who is humble cries out. So Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, he may lift you up, casting all your anxieties on him. Boy, if we'd only do that. Casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so humbled, realizing his weaknesses, David is not slow to cry out to God. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 13. He says in 13, he says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. In other words, hurry up, Lord, please. In verse 17, he says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Don't delay, O my God. You notice the urgency in David's pleas. Often when we're in a bit of a fix, when we're in our pits, we think, you know, well, I'm a child of God. The Bible says that if I cry out to him for help, he's going he's to turn up. How come he's not turning up now? How long more do I have to wait? What's the point of this trial? Now, that's another sermon the point of trials. We won't go into that today, but God does use trials in our lives as Christians to help us mature and grow. And we can see, we read Romans 5, verse 3, Paul writes about sufferings, etc. He says, not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Imagine that, we rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, who says that? How's it going? Oh, I'm going through terrible trials, but I'm rejoicing at the moment. What? Are you nuts? Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. You see, that's what God might be trying to achieve in your life is when he's given this, this pit or this trial to you. Produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Third point. Waiting on the Lord means trusting on Him, and this is important, alone. Trusting on Him alone. And we can see this, I think, in verses 3, verses 4, verses 11. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes we can all have a big ego. And we try and, and, and work out our own problems on our own before we, we sit down and think oh, and say to ourselves, okay, this is not the way God wants me to approach this. This is not the way God, this is not God glorifying. We might even think, well, look, what, I've been in a fix before, and I've sorted it out for myself. You know, God would want me to try, at least try and sort it out for myself, wouldn't he? You know, God sometimes lets us stew in the pit for a while. Let's just get tired of kicking or trying to crawl out the muddy sides. Looking up at the high sides of the pit and wondering, how am I going to get out of this? And sometimes when we come to a point when we realize we can't do it, God steps in. He pushes us aside. He says, okay, that's enough, and delivers us. Now, David showed exemplary trust in trials in the second half, verse 3. He says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So because of all the experiences that David had, because he got deliverance, and this is a great testimony in a Christian's life, when we're going through trials, when we're going through the pits, 
or when we're in the pits, as we say in Ireland, the world is watching us. And how we deal with our trials, how we try and overcome our trials with the help of the Lord is a great testimony to others around us who will be watching carefully and seeing how is that person who professes to believe in Christ, who professes to be a child of God, how are they dealing with this problem that is different to the way that I might deal with it? And because of that, because David has leaned completely on the Lord, he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And again in verse 4 he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. That's important. Who does not turn to the proud. We're back to humbleness again. To those who go astray after a lie. And again in verse 11, listen, David says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. You know, we can get the, we can, I certainly can get the, the vibes here that David is not just sitting down like we'd be in a doctor's waiting room, twiddling our thumbs passively. Just listen to these, listen to these words of David. Like he's so confident, isn't he? As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain, he says, your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He is certain. He's not in great doubt. Sure, he's waiting. He's waiting patiently. That's all he can do. He's waiting for God to move. But he is certain that God will move. It's as if David is saying, Lord, look, this problem is too big for me. I can't do anything about it. Please move. Move in my life, Lord. Come in. Sort it out so that you can get the glory, not me. I'm not going to rely on worldly things to get me out of this. You move. There's a story told by Donner Atwood of the Blitz in London long ago. For the people that are young kids here, the Blitz was when the Germans flew huge squadrons of aircraft and over London and over large urban areas in England and just bombed nightly the poor residents of these places. And there was terrible, terrible damage and loss of life. It was, it was reciprocated again at the end of the war when the Allies went over and bombed Germany. It was a right mess, but anyways, uh, Donner Atwood tells of a story of one night <clears throat> of a father in London whose house was, was, was just bombed out of it by a, a huge big missile or a bomb or whatever that fell on it. And it started going up with flames. And he grabbed his son and he pulled him outside the door of the house which was now pretty much engulfed with fire. And he was looking around and he couldn't find any place to, for protection. So <laughs> the obvious thing was he actually jumped into a huge big bomb crater and he called out to his son and he said come on he said to the son jump but the young lad was terrified and he called out he says I can't see you dad and the father was down in the pit remember he was down in the, in the crater and he was looking up and he could see his son silhouetted against the raging orange smoky night sky and the father said but I can see you jump son the boy jumped because he trusted his dad. And Donner Atwood writes, he says, the Christian faith, he says, enables us to face life or to meet death. Not because we can see, but with the certainty that we are seen. Not that we know all the answers, but that we are known. We're known by God. 
He's our heavenly Father. He cares for us. He's watching out for us. The fourth thing I think that David says, what, what uh, uh, David points out as to what waiting on the Lord is. He says, waiting on the Lord means recounting his many wonders and his providential care. And we can see this in verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. You know, when we're in the pit, there's one thing that we have time for. And most of you will attest to this. You have time to think, especially if the Lord is not coming to your rescue. You have time to think about what's going on here. How did I end up here? What can I do to get out of it? Is this a test? Is this just because of some sin in my life? And possibly sins can land us in pits really, really quickly. David would attest to this. Look at his dealings with Uriah the Hittite, who was married to Bathsheba. That whole thing spawned an awful mess in David's life, and he found himself in the biggest pit of his life. And the consequences from that event had huge repercussions for David's personal life and for Israel. But anyways, I'm sure David had plenty of time to think over the years of what had happened and how that had affected everything. One thing we can remember when we're in the pits, and remember this, is remember on how God has delivered you before. I'm looking around at people here today in this church, and I know that you've been through terrible trials. And I think that each trial that you've been through is probably strengthening you because the Lord has come and delivered you, and you've seen him work in your life. So therefore, when you're going through the next trial, you're depending even more on him. It's like a muscle which you're exercising. Paul says all the time in, 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 in the New Testament, he says, complete the race. And by completing the race, it means doing the same things over and over again. You're running the same pace every day. Sure, you slow down. Sure, you go fast. But you don't stop. You don't stop and trust in the Lord. No doubt David would have remembered as he was down in these pits thinking. He would have remembered, look at the Lord came to my deliverance before. He saved me when that bear crept up behind me and take half my sheep flock out. He saved me when I fought that lion, and the Bible says he pulled the lion by the beard and slew him. Now, I don't know how that works, but there's one thing that I do know. David couldn't do that on his own. The Lord was working there. He was working when he slew Goliath. Just read Samuel, the book of Samuel, and you'll see that how brave David was in the face of absolute doom when he dealt with Goliath. Goliath was taunting the men for, I think, a month. He was taunting the men of Israel. And the men of Israel, it says, were quivering and they were shaking at the knees every morning. And this young man, in his early 20s, I suppose, goes out and challenges Goliath. And he was so confident, it says that he ran towards them. He ran towards them and he slew Goliath with a sling. And then the kids would like the gory bit. He actually cut his neck off with Goliath's sword. And where was Goliath's sword? It was still in its sheath. <laughs> Goliath hadn't even bothered to take the sword out by the looks of things. It was still in there. David would remember those stories, those times of deliverances, and said, Lord, you're good. You're going to help me out this time. And so can we. The fifth point is when we find ourselves in the pit, we need to wait on the Lord, and this means obeying him. And we look to verses 6 to 8 for this. Some of us, all of us, at some point or time, including myself, we can draw near, like I said before, to God when we're in the pits. And sometimes we can draw, our, our, 
God seems to drift further and further away from us. We might even think, well, look, I've cried out to the Lord. I've waited. I've waited more than enough, Lord. I've waited patiently, and you're not moving. I think you really turned your back on me this time. And what's the temptation then? The temptation is to break your commitment and trust with God and to try and turn to the world for a remedy, to forget about the Lord and to try to do something under your own strength. But we can read here that David delighted God. Look what David writes in chapter or in verse 6. In sacrifice, he says, and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Verse 7, then I said, this is strange, isn't it? Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. What's David on about there? Verse 8, I delight to do your will, he says, O God. My law is within, your law, sorry, is within my heart. Now, some of you might rec recognize those verses from 1 Samuel. Remember, uh, remember when, when Samuel, when, when Saul, who was the first king of Israel, um, broke relationship with God? And it, it really was kind of just, uh, it didn't seem to be a serious issue. He just didn't do exactly what God asked him. A bit like when Moses struck the rock twice. Remember that? God told him to strike the rock once. Moses did it twice. You'd say, no big deal. The same with Saul. He, he, Saul was, was not afraid of giving loads of offerings and sacrifices. But he wasn't doing it with the right heart. It really was sort of a political move that Saul did to try and please the people. But because of that, God broke relationship with him and took the kingship away from him. And I suppose we're a bit like that sometimes. We feel that if only I do more, especially when we're in the pits of trials, if only I could, is there something I could do to please God to get out of this? And even in our daily Christian lives when we're not in the pits, we sometimes try and offer up the wrong types of sacrifices and the wrong types of offerings to God. We might read our Bible for a couple hours on a Sunday evening and think, God's going to be pleased with that. I've read through Leviticus. I mean, that's heavy going, you know? He's going to be pleased with that. Or we might do some other good Christian act, giving, helping the needy, and all of these things are good Christian things to do. But if they're not done with the right motivation, and it's so easy to lose the right motivation, isn't it? They're not the offerings, and they're not the, the sacrifice that God wants. Now, some of us will also recognize that these verses, 6, 7, and 8, are quoted in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. And they're connected to our great Redeemer, Jesus. Now, David tried to obey the Lord, and he didn't do it perfectly, did he? We try to obey the Lord. We can't do it perfectly. But Jesus can. And the writer of Hebrews says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. This is Jesus speaking. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is within my heart. This is Jesus as well speaking. But we can all read those and utter those words in our own heart as a, as a sacrifice as well. Point number six, waiting on the Lord means seeking him. And you'll find this in verse 16. Have a quick look at verse 16. It says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Now, seeking the Lord in this context is the same as crying out in prayer, expectant prayer. And this is 
a very, very important part of being in the pits, being in trials. It's the best sort of offering and the best sort of sacrifice that can we offer. Fervent, expectant prayer. You know, I suppose we're all guilty of it at times. Some of us think of God as, as a kind of a genie in a lamp. You know, we rub it. God comes out, moves, and then we put the lamp back on the shelf again till we need him. That's not obeying the Lord. Because if we do that, we're not really in the right frame of mind to be able to glorify God. Look what, look what David says there in the last line. It says, great is the Lord. This should be our heart prayer. As we go through trials, we should be saying to ourselves, look, I'm going through a trial at this moment, but how can this trial glorify God and not me? The last point I'd like to make is waiting on the Lord means rejoicing on Him. And, you know, I'm sure when David was released from the pit, he was happy, he rejoiced. But if you notice there, it says, may, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Now, there's a difference. David is glad that he's been delivered. But look at that key word, rejoice and be glad in you. God is our treasure. It's God that delights our soul. It's God that fuels us to be able to weather these storms. Paul has the same sentiment in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, says Paul, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Imagine that Paul said that, and count them as rubbish in order that I may, might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes with the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, as we wrap this up this morning here, I'd just like to ask you a question. Have you cried out to Christ? Have you cried out to God? Maybe you're a Christian here and you're going through a trial at the moment and you're waiting patiently on the Lord. Maybe you're someone who's here this morning and you're not a believer and you're going through a trial. Maybe you're trying to sort out the problem on your own. Maybe you're trying to even sort out the biggest problem in your life, your sin problem. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even David, a man who was greatly used by God, he was so aware of his own sin. Look at verse 12 there. He says, this is when he finds himself in the pit the second time, and this time it's because of his own sin. He says, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see, says David. They are more than the hairs of, of my head. My heart fails me. This is David speaking. We should have the honesty as well in front of God to say that ourselves. My iniquities have overtaken me, Lord. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Perhaps you're here today listening and you know that deep down you're not right with your maker. You know that your iniquities have overtaken you. You know your sins are so many, so deep, so grievous against God. There's nothing really you can do and you've, you've been fooling yourself for so long thinking, I can sort myself out. 
I can get out of this pit. I can get right with God in my own way. Well, you're not in the right place. You need to cry out to God for deliverance. You need to be in a different place to that. Psalm 66 says, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Listen to this. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, says the psalmist, the Lord would not have listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, the psalmist says, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You see, the psalmist was in a humble state there. He realized he was a sinner. He realized that if he cherished sin in his life, that if he didn't repent of the sin, that God couldn't move in his life. When a sinner no longer, no longer cherishes sin in their life and cries out to God, God will answer. God will deliver you. None of us, none of us have deserved God's favor, God's grace. None of us. We are all sinners. Whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever, whether you consider yourself a good person or a bad person, we have all sinned, says Paul in Romans. But the big question is, who has taken your sin? We just praise Jesus Christ that he took our sin. I praise him every morning. Do you? We thank Jesus for being obedient to go to the cross. We thank the Father for sending him to the cross. That by his spilt blood, that the sin of the world was taken on him. So that God, our Father, could have a right relationship with us. That he could look on us and say, yeah, you're in the family. You've believed the son that I have sent. If you've seen the son and believed in the son, you've seen and believed in me. And we just thank Jesus for being so obedient. We thank God for showing us the way to salvation. We thank God for sorting out our sin problem, that we don't have to do it. Because let's be honest, we can't do it. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit deserve our highest praise and trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, your word is so rich. We thank you that we've seen so much in Psalm 40. Um, Lord, let us try and read this more regularly when we're down in the dumps, down in the pits ourselves. Uh, let us try to understand what it means to wait on you. And let us try to wait on you more efficiently and more effectively in the future. Not in our own strength, but Lord, because of your grace. We don't deserve it, Lord. But you are such a lovely father. You are such a steadfast and faithful father. We thank you, Lord. You're not like our earthly fathers. You are the perfect daddy. And we cry out in delight and we wait to see you one day face to face. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.